0: This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Deis ex machina. God from the machine. That's what it means. Deis ex machina. It's a Latinized Greek phrase. It's a Greek dramatic or literary device. and It was used by the early Greek playwrights to save the protagonists of their stories when things got too complicated. So they'd write a play or a story, and they'd have a protagonist. You know, that's the hero or the, the person we're rooting for or the person trying to achieve something. And then that hero would encounter all sorts of complications and obstacles. And they would encounter antagonists, people opposed to them, and then dramatic Events would ensue, which would further the story along the dramatic path until finally at the end, our protagonist would find him or herself up against the proverbial wall boxed in so entwined with these complications, these dramatic entanglements that the viewer of the play or the reader of the story or the listener of the story, more importantly, that's how these ancient stories were most commonly conveyed. They were conveyed orally. Well, at some point, the listener of the story or the viewer would say to themselves, "I wonder how, you know, so and so is going to get out of this jam. How is this story going to resolve itself?" And often, the device that was used to resolve these things in ancient times was Deus ex machina, God in the machine. And literally, in the cases of plays, they would have this crane-like thing lower a being. Someone dressed up as an angel or a being of light or something, you know, a godlike being would come down into the stage or sometimes they'd have a trap door in the stage and they'd lift up this this actor dressed up as a being of light up out of the stage, it would appear magically. And it was done by some sort of mechanical device, the machina. And then this person, the dace, the god, would solve things, would tell Joe protagonist to go over to one side of the stage and would send the antagonist or antagonist to the other side of the stage and would give a little lecture and then would bless them and all would be well and sometimes this was done in a way that would make you laugh. It was sometimes supposed to be comedic. It was supposed to be intentionally absurd and other times it was supposed to be done with great severity and austerity to convey this sense of solemnity so that you know the importance of the lesson would be felt with gravity by the viewer. We do this today in our modern literature, in our modern stories, in our movies, in our television shows, in our Netflix. I've been watching a lot of Netflix lately, what with the lockdown and all. But we use this device in our stories too. It's sometimes a little more subtle than lowering, you know, an angel onto the stage with a crane or having someone come up out of the base of the stage. I mean, sometimes it's more subtle. Not always though. Sometimes there are some series where the dace the god the angel is you know they're not hiding that it's an angel or a spirit or a magical person in some way but most of the time it's a little more subtle in our modern literature and our modern drama i was recently watching the most excellent movie castaway starring tom hanks castaway is full of symbolism and imagery it's a very rich film And this richness escaped me, escaped my attention the first time I saw it. It had to be explained to me by my older brother, who's a lot smarter than I am. Anyway, there's this great Dace Ex Machina moment in the film. There are actually a lot of Dace Ex Machina moments in Castaway, and I want to tell you about one of them. And, you know, spoiler alert, I'm going to, you know, divulge the end of the movie. So if you haven't seen the movie, and you want to see it, and you don't want it to be ruined, turn this off and go watch it right now. The God and the Machine moment that I want to speak about In Castaway is when the half-broken piece of outhouse washes up on the shores of the island that Tom Hanks has been confined to for four years. In the story, Tom Hanks was in a plane wreck in the middle of the South Pacific. Somehow he manages to survive and he gets washed up on this island and he's been stuck there for four years. Earlier in the movie, we see him try to escape the island by paddling across the reef and beyond these huge breakwaters that surround the island but he fails he gets slammed onto the reef and you know there's no way to get beyond these massive breakwaters they serve almost like a fence like a like a prison fence around the island confining him to the island so he's resigned himself to the, his fate and he's just been living just surviving for 4 years and then one day this big 6 foot long piece of bent plastic washes up on the island. And this is actually half of an outhouse, an outhouse that's been smashed in half, basically washes up onto the shore. And at first you just think it's another piece of sea trash. You know, there's all this sea trash that floats around in the ocean. You just think it's a piece of sea trash, a piece of flotsam and jetsam that just has randomly washed up on the shore. And initially you think, oh, just here we go again, adding insult to injury. Here's Tom Hanks stuck on the island and oh, half of an outhouse is washed up. Ha ha ha. For a moment, you think there's some ironic commentary here. But then you see Tom Hanks thinking about this. And then you see the gears in his mind coming together and starting to produce work instead of just randomly spinning. Then Tom Hanks rushes off and begins to make a raft out of logs and scraps that he finds on the island. And then he uses this piece of plastic, this six-foot angled piece of plastic, this half of an outhouse, as a sail to propel his raft. So this big piece of plastic as a sail enables him to harness the winds, which coincidentally have just changed direction as the season has just changed from winter to spring. And so the wind has just changed and begins blowing out directly towards these massive waves that are breaking on the reef. And now he's got this, plas- this big plastic sail, which was given to him, this sail that just washed up on the ocean, right at the time where there's a big, gusty, seasonal wind pattern blowing out against the waves that have effectively kept him trapped on this island. This ex machina, God in the machine. And it works. He rides this raft, propelled by these strong winds, the power of which is harnessed by this plastic sail, which is really half of an outhouse. And together he's able to ride up over and through these huge breakwaters that are smashing on the reef. The movie's not over at that point. Tom Hanks floats around in the ocean, and he's drifting and drifting, and he's using the sail. But then one day, that same day, that same God yanks the sail off, breaks it off of his raft, and then he's really just drifting. And Tom Hanks seems quite peaceful about all this. He just has accepted it. He doesn't know the outcome. He's just on this raft, floating, drifting. No island, no sail, just a raft and his own submission and acceptance. And at one point, he actually pulls these handmade oars that he's made to steer the raft in sort of a crude way. He just pulls those off and slowly lowers those into the sea, which of course signifies his final relinquishment, total relinquishment of any control, any false control that he has deluded himself into thinking he might have. And surely thereafter, real salvation comes for him. He's spotted by a big huge oil tanker, and that tanker picks him up out of the sea. Days ex machina saved Tom Hanks. The god and the machine saved him, at least in the story. And we know the story is just a story. We know it's a movie. We know it's on one level fiction. But these Deus ex machina moments just move us. They're so poignant. They feel so real and maybe it's because we ourselves are reminded of our own deus ex machina moments, or we long for our own deus ex machina moments. But the notion that there's a God in a machine who's going to come and save us when our back is up against the wall, that rings so true, that resonates so deeply with us as human beings, that sometimes it almost feels as if that's why we've come here, to experience that. In the Old Testament, there's a terrific deis ex machina story. Actually, there are a couple of deis ex machina stories sort of bookended together in the story of Elijah the Tishbite, the great prophet, and the old woman or the old widow. So Elijah, if you'll recall, is the Tishbite, the great prophet of the Old Testament, one of the most renowned prophets. He's prophet at the time that King Ahab is ruling over Israel. King Ahab is not righteous. He's married to a horrible woman named Jezebel who's convinced Ahab and all of Israel to follow Baal, the false god of this world. And they've surrounded themselves with Baal's priests. There's 450 of these sycophant priests of Baal, the false god. And all of Israel has become infected with Ahab and Jezebel's false notions of what life means and what the purpose of life is. Anyways, that's when Elijah's prophet and Elijah's marching around and Elijah is commanded by God to seal up the heavens, which means to stop the rains from coming. And the rains in Israel, ancient and today, are are really important and it's important that they come at the right times. In some places in the world, like where I live in the Northeast, the rains can you know there's so much rain, we have an abundance of rain, it doesn't matter if they come at the exact right time, and you know we have enough water, we have enough to grow our crops, everything's fine. But in Israel, if the rains don't come at right the the exact time you can't plant, then your plants won't grow, and so if the rains get screwed up for a season, people start starving because there's no food, there's no crops, everything fails. and so Elijah has sealed up the heavens, made the rain stop, and after he's done this. He's told to go to Zarephath, which is this little outpost in Israel. And in Zarephath, there's this widow who has a son and the rains have been stopped. And so this widow and her son, these people who are at the margin, they start to starve first and she's, you know, the rains have stopped, the crops are failing, the meals running low, and she's down to her last little bit of grain and her last little bit of oil. And then that's it. And that's when Elijah shows up. And by the way, Elijah is the one who sealed the heavens and started this whole series of calamities, put the whole thing in motion. So this guy shows up, Elijah, to this widow's house. And she is getting ready to make her last two cakes, one for herself and one for her son. And these two cakes represent their final supper ever because she's convinced she's forecast into the future what having no meal and no oil means. And what that means is I'm going to starve and die. So let's eat the last bit here, enjoy it, and then let's just wait. It's been a good run. That's her mindset when Elijah shows up. And we don't know if she knows that he's the guy who stopped the rain and put her in this predicament or not, but whether she knows that or not, Elijah makes a strange request of her, and he says, hey, before you make those last two cakes for you and your son, your final meal before you go starve, how about how about you make me a cake? In fact, here's a promise, oh widow and son, if you make me a cake first, give me a little bit of this last, you know, little bit that you have, make me a small cake first, I promise that the barrel that you store your meal in will never run out of meal; it will always replenish itself. It'll never, it'll never go empty. And the oil that you keep, the, the the bottle that you keep your oil in, that will never go dry. Okay, so that's the promise to you, widow. Give me the last little bit that you got there. Make me a cake, and then that's your promise. And you know, I said earlier that we don't know that the woman knew that Elijah was the one who put this whole. Series of events that led to her imminent starvation in motion. We, but she did know that he was a man of God at a minimum. And so, and she also probably thought, well, you know, I have one cup of meal left and a little bit of oil left, and I don't know how much longer that's going to keep me alive if I don't do this. So, at a minimum, I think she thought about Elijah's offer of the endless supply of meal in her barrel and the endless supply of oil. She probably thought, it, thought of it as, though highly improbable, a bit of a lottery ticket. And you know the meal that she was gonna have to give up to him instead of eating it herself wouldn't keep her alive all that much. I mean, this is the calculus that may have been going on in her head. And so she said, okay, I'll do it. Now, her, her acts are often told in a way that are meant to illustrate her great faith because she gave him her final bit of meal and oil instead of eating it herself. And I, I, su- you know, I suppose you could interpret it that way, that's fine. But it's kind of like if you're starving and you have one apple left, and you know the one apple is not going to keep you alive very much longer, and someone says, hey, can I have half? I think at that point you might just say, yeah, whatever, who cares? So for me, the widow is kind of in a who cares moment. <laughs> what do I got to lose? Nonetheless, she, she does it. She makes him a cake first, and she gives it to him. And lo and behold... Elijah's promise the next day begins to be fulfilled. The barrel of meal is full. The cruse of oil is full. And it continues that way month after month after month. What a beautiful deus ex machina moment in the Old Testament. God from the machine came and just saved her. And I think this puzzled her. And I don't think she quite understood it because later in that same chapter, which is First Kings chapter 17, by the way, Something else wonderful happens to this woman. It doesn't seem wonderful at, at the beginning. And what happens is a couple months after this, the great meal slash oil miracle, her son dies. He gets sick and he dies. And this confuses the woman because she's been eating the miracle meal, miracle cakes. But then her son, a few months after Elijah blessed the meal and, and the oil, he dies. And this sets up the second and more powerful des es machina moment in this story because the old woman who had been eating the miracle meal eating the miracle cakes thought her son died because of her own sins she thought her son died as a punishment because she was unworthy unrighteous sinful as we all are and so while she was partaking of the miracle meal all those months the entire time in the back of her mind she was saying i don't deserve this because i'm Sinful. And then finally, when her son died, she had proof, evidence, hard evidence that she was sinful. And she went to Elijah and she told him this. She said, Elijah, you've come to me, you're a man of God, but you've also come to punish me because of my sins. You brought me the miracle food, but all that did was make me aware of my own unworthiness. And frankly, I think that part of the story is more disturbing and more poignant than being on your last cup of meal and oil, eating your last cake and facing starvation. I think it's sadder to think yourself unworthy of God's love, sadder to think you deserve punishment for your sins. I think that's sadder than facing starvation. And that's why I point this out as a second des ex machina moment in this story. Because facing starvation is one thing, but seeing your dead son is quite another. And the latter, the dead son, that really seems irreversible. If you're still alive and you have a little bit of food, well, there's still hope that you might survive. But once someone's dead, lying on the floor, it seems it seems pretty permanent. And Elijah takes the boy's body and carries it upstairs and prays over the boy and pleads with God to heal this boy. And what does the God and the machine do? He sends the spirit of the boy back to the body of the boy. And the body reanimates. And Elijah brings the now resurrected boy down to his mother. And it's then that the story concludes. And it concludes with her saying, now I know you're a man of God. Which is another way of saying, now I know God loves me and accepts me unconditionally. So much of what we do in life is mere contrast to the des ex machina. We think we need to earn, be worthy of, strive for, conform to, be deserving, prove ourselves. And all these things serve a purpose, I suppose. But the purpose of all those things might be to make the des ex machina moments in our own lives so blatantly obvious. Maybe that's why those moments are so poignant and moving for us. Because we finally realize at those moments that we can get rid of the sail and put the oars into the water and let them float away and allow the sea and its currents to direct our lives. And more importantly, that by relinquishing false notions of control, your life actually improves and gets better and richer and more abundant and more peaceful and calmer and happier. And later on in the story of Elijah, he has his own moment of deeper understanding, of deeper realization, of being saved, of being loved just because by God. If you remember from the story, Elijah engages in what amounts to a god off with the priests of Baal. There are these priests, 450 of them. They nominally work for the king, but really they're working for the king's wife, Jezebel, who, well, she's able to manipulate Ahab She's gotten inside his head. She's convinced Ahab that all of Israel ought to worship the false god, Baal. And they ought to rely on these priests to guide them through life and to teach them the meaning of their lives. And this is why Elijah at the beginning of the story sealed the heavens and cut the rain off to to awaken all of Israel, awaken them to their senses because Jezebel and these false priests and their false notions and this false god of this world, all of that had infected the minds of the people of Israel. And Elijah comes in, and he challenges all the priests of Baal to a great contest. And the contest is to see whose god can ignite an altar piled with wood and on top of the wood piled with chopped up animal sacrifice. So so that's a strange contest. The contest was basically... This, on one side, all the priests of Baal, and there were 450 of them, they were told to build an altar and pile it full of wood and then sacrifice an animal and put that on top and then call on their God, Baal, to ignite that pile of wood and burn the sacrifice. And then Elijah, on his side, it was just him, but he represented the true God. And he built this altar and had a pile of wood and put an animal on top of it, at you know chopped up animal carcass on top and he was going to call on his god to ignite this pile that that's the contest sort of a god off if you will so that that's what they do and the priests of baal of course fail they go first they have home court advantage they begin praying in the morning hour after hour they're they're praying more and more intensely nothing's happening meanwhile elijah's on the periphery mocking them he's talking trash and this goes on until midday when they finally relent And then it's time for the visitor, Elijah, to have a turn. And Elijah steps forward and he says, now wait, before I start, let's up the ante a little bit, shall we? In order to dispel any confusion, any ambiguity about the power of my God, let's, before I start to pray and call down God's power, let's completely soak the wood. And he calls the servants to come and pour water on top of the pile of wood below his animal sacrifice. And then he tells them to do it again, and then he tells them to do it a third time to make sure that the wood is totally soaked, and it becomes so soaked that the water collects in the trenches below the altar. And then Elijah prays, and after his prayer, he rains down this column of fire onto this pile of wood, and it it explodes, and all the water immediately evaporates. And so Elijah wins the god off, and then he takes the priests of Baal, and he marches them down to the river, and then he he kills them all. And all the people of Israel who were watching this, I mean, that was the point of the god off, the, the God off was sort of a demonstration for all the population of Israel. They're all watching this big spectacle and the, the exploding altar and then the you know, killing of all the priests of Baal. And they say, hmm, I, I, you know, we're going to go with Elijah's God. That God seems better. So they're kind of, you know, they're just at the beginning of their journeys. They're just at the beginning of starting to think that maybe there's, maybe there's more than one path to choose from and Ahab, the king, he, he's more like the children of Israel. He's watching this and he thinks, hmm, you know, this Elijah guy might be onto something. But Jezebel, his wife, you know, she's the smart one. She's really running things. Well, she sees that Elijah has sort of, at a minimum, has sort of disrupted this spell she's got cast over everybody, including Ahab. And she, she goes berserk. And she swears in her wrath that she's going to hunt down Elijah and kill him. And then she's going to feed his corpse to the dogs. And Elijah, you know, is disturbed by these threatenings. And then he he splits. He's also told by an angel, "Look, you, time for you to get out of here." And now Elijah's going to have his own dace ex machina moment, like the woman, the old widow, like she was confused. You remember the old widow had two dace ex machina moments. The first was when she fed Elijah, and then was blessed with the endless supply of meal and oil. That was the first one, but that one sort of confused her because she thought of herself as a sinner. Well, Elijah had just rained down fire from the sky and killed all the priests of Baal and had convinced the children of Israel to begin to change the way that they think about their own lives, and now, oddly enough, he was being chased out of town by Jezebel and her suddenly credible threats to kill him and feed his body to the dogs. Well, that didn't seem like much of a reward for someone who was able to seal up the heavens and rain down fire, someone who could command all the powers of the universe. And so whereas the woman thought herself unworthy of God's love, maybe Elijah, and I'm speculating here, maybe Elijah started thinking he was a bit more powerful than he was. Maybe ego had crept into his mind. You know, it's interesting. As a contrast to sin, if you think of yourself as sinful, you think that you're completely unworthy. But you know, it's not any more healthy to think that you're uber, uber, uber worthy. You know, it's not great to 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 want to be the world's most powerful genie. Remember that from Aladdin, Jafar's downfall was when he wanted to become the world's most powerful genie. I'm speculating here, but maybe that's what Elijah started thinking about himself. I mean, how could he not think that a little bit? At his word, people suddenly have endless supplies of food. At his prayers, people are leaping up, you know, dead people are leaping up off of their deathbeds. At his word, the rain stops and fire comes raining down instead from the sky. And the Deis Ex Machina lesson for Elijah was so tailored to his experience much like the experience for the widow was so tailored to her experience and her mindset. What happens to Elijah in the face of Jezebel's threatenings is he's told to split, go to Horeb, which is this remote place. It's up on the high plain. And so he travels days to get there. And when he gets there, there's nothing. He's all alone, totally. And an an angel shows up and says, here's some food. You better eat this food because you're going to need your strength. So he eats the food, and then he takes refuge in this cave. And then God says, after a while, head out to the edge of the cliff. So Elijah does that. He goes out to the edge of the cliff. And while he's on the edge of the cliff, God teaches him something beautiful. He he shows Elijah an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And then there's a huge windstorm, and God's not in the windstorm. And then there's fire but God's not in the fire. And after all these things, then Elijah feels the still, small voice. And isn't it interesting that the lesson Elijah, who had, who had wielded the forces of nature, the lesson that he had to learn was the lesson of the still, small voice, stillness. The final lesson Elijah had to learn was that God was a God of love and peace and stillness, not retribution and punishment and wars and battles, which of course raises the question, well, then why was he permitted? Why was Elijah permitted to wield a column of fire from the sky and to seal up the heavens and to and to kill the priests of Baal and do all these things? And the answer to that question may be the same answer that the old widow got when she asked why her son died, which may be the same answer that we get whenever we ask questions like, why am I striving so hard to be worthy, or striving so hard to earn, or working so hard to fight for something that's right? Why are we doing all this? Why are we working so hard to prove ourselves? I think that's the fundamental question that we all ask, and I think God's answer is this because it makes the Deus ex machina moments in your life so blindingly obvious. Because all those false notions contrast so very starkly with moments of peace and stillness and love from God. If you think of yourself as being so sinful that God would punish you by killing your child, how poignant it is when you learn that that notion is false that's a moment you remember when you've wielded God's power in retribution and punishment of others. How beautiful and peaceful it is when you realize that God is stillness. When you've spent your life trying to be worthy and to earn God's acceptance, how wonderful and poignant it is when you realize by contrast that he just loves you anyway. And all of our experiences of contrast and of recognizing our intertwined with each other. Elijah's experience and the widow's experience and the children of Israel's experience and the priests and the king's, and they're all wrapped up, designed to bounce off, interact, reinforce each other. Elijah's journey and the old widow's journey and the widow's son and the king and Jezebel and the priests and the children of Israel, all their journeys wrapped up to illuminate one never-ending truth, that God loves you, that God is stillness, that you, like Tom Hanks, can let go and allow God to do for you. We are all having our own distinctive experiences of contrast so that we can recognize together the truth about ourselves and about God. And when we do, it's quite poignant. As poignant as the deis ex machina. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.